talking God with Uncle Luke when the cat is away. Come on in. Let's check it out. We got Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 27. All the bubbas of the world. We got one mission in mind. Welcome to the Bubblical Channel. Always glad somebody is showing up. We just got one simple aim, and that is to all the Bubbles of the world, we want you to read your Bibles better um, and to just read your Bibles. And we're here to make that um, process easy and fun and enjoyable. That's what we're into here, to read your Bible, say your prayers, get together, talk God. That's our thing, you know, to get rid of the bullshit, to get to the holy shit so that we can shoot the shit with our friends and in our loved ones in a way that makes sense, in a way that makes us feel good, a way that just gives us great stories that uh, shape our lives. That's what God's after. Nothing more, nothing less. We just want our soul to magnify the Lord. We just want our spirit to rejoice in God, our Savior. That's what Mary says, and that's what we want to be found saying too, and we want to help people get to that point. That's it. Well, let's dive into our next um you know, part of the story that Uncle Luke unveils. And the next part of the story that Uncle Luke unveils is in Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 27. And, you know, here, Jesus is going to stop, pump the brakes, and try to add some clarification. Um, but he's only going to do it in a way that, you know, is is kind and friendly. He's not going to wag his finger in everybody's face. He's just going to give you something to think about. That's the way that God rolls in the whole Bible. He gives us something to think about compared to the rest of what the world is giving us to think about. God, too, gives us something to think about. He gives us a perspective. He gives us the answers to the questions that we need to be answering. Okay, so as this scene unfolds, uh, we are told as they heard these things, meaning the disciples um, Jesus pumps the brakes, um, and, and he feels the need to, you know, explain what's ahead because Jerusalem is nearby. Jerusalem is just ahead a little ways, um, probably a day's walk at this point, And he feels the need to stop and drop in this parable to give them some light on some darkness that they have. And what I mean by that is if you go back, um, a few passages in our talks, um, and and in Luke, Uncle Luke telling us what's going on here. Um, we remember that Jesus uh, just got done saying that in Jerusalem, very bad things are going to happen. That cracks me up because I remember watching a movie, renting a movie, uh, you, know, uh, you know, renting a movie that said, uh, the title was Very Bad Things, and I, I started to watch it, and I was absolutely horrified. I don't like, uh, 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 well, anyhow. But then I was thinking, man, that's the title. What, what was I thinking? It, it was exactly what it said. But Jesus uh, just got done telling the boys and the ladies that are traveling with him, the, the disciples, that very bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem so bad that he's going to die. And then he says, but in three days I'm going to rise. Uncle Luke tells us they heard none of these things. The disciples are all telling us. We heard none of these things. We didn't get it. We wouldn't hear it. We wouldn't see it. It was too much for our imagination. But that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't trying to be clear. It's just that it was something that was not wanting to be heard and understood. 
So Jesus is doing his part. And as we really dive into what Jesus says, we find he's really not that complicated. What's complicated is us. What's complicated is all of our hurts, hangups, and, you know, expectations that we put in Jesus' way. But I think we're going to find that this is pretty straightforward stuff. And it's a good, you know, it's it's a good storyline, and it's pretty funny, and it's pretty fun as usual. Uh, you know, it's just the way Jesus rolls. Anywho, so this parable um, that we're going to dive into, or this story, maybe we'll just call it a story. I don't, it doesn't matter really. But, but this story, you know, is really to add clarification about what's ha- going to happen in Jerusalem. And, um, and, and, and we're told specifically that because they were near Jerusalem, he tells this story. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was near, he told this story. So this story's purpose is defined. Uncle Luke helps us to see that, you know, and so everything that we take out of the story has to fit into that purpose. So remember, too, that in response to Jesus saying that very bad things are going to happen to him, he's going to die, and he's going to rise in three days. Hey, hey, that's good news. Uh, In response to that, we come across a blind beggar that enthusiastically calls upon Jesus as the son of David. He gets his healing um, and his sight back. He is pumped up and follows Jesus. We also see that uh, Zacharias is blind because he's short, and that's funny. Um, and he he receives um, Jesus, and Jesus receives him in a beautiful picture of fellowship. And uh, well, Jesus says, well, "I'm here to save the lost man." And and Ze- uh, uh, Zacchaeus just uh, you know embodies that that enthusiasm to see Jesus, to understand Jesus, that you know we should all embrace. Um, so with the stage set, you know Jesus is going to now. St- you know, stop along the way. He's going to, I got to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something that should help you um, to understand the events that are about to happen since you're not tracking very well. So Jesus' story is this. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Okay, well, that that is normal stuff. Remember that, you know, the people of Israel are under the the authority of Rome. Rome is the boss. And so even Israel's kings have to be chosen by Rome. And so what Jesus starts, you know, this, this entry into a story immediately sets off, you know, a memory that everybody would have had. Because um, he is specifically referring to, you know, an event, you know, where, where uh, a, a gentleman uh, who was Herod the Great's son, um, when Herod the Great had died, you know, which was probably 20, 30 years ago, um, it was now uh, Archelaus's, um, uh, you know, turn to, to lead in his father's absence, according to his will. But before that can happen, he's got to go to Rome to have it all checked out and stamped, which it is. But Archelaus was a jagoff, and nobody liked him. So, again, Jesus goes on to tell the story of a nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Um, but the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. 
which is all part of the Archelaus story. You know, Archelaus got to go to Rome, and and Israel has sent a delegation saying, we hate this guy, we do not want him to rule over us. And so Jesus' story here has this super familiar ring, you know, um, and, and, and again, this, these are events that only happened 20-some years ago. Um, it would be kind of like, you know, uh, 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 you know, using, you know, a presidential election like, like Barack Obama. It's, it's very unlikely that, you know, people, you know, if you told a story, you know, related to Barack Obama's presidency and becoming elected, you know, president, it's, it's hardly possible that even in 10 years, somebody would be like, dude, I don't I have no idea who you're talking about. Um, and, and you could even tell the story without names involved, and people would get the gist of what you were saying immediately because they remember the events. These are events within the memory. So Jesus is telling a story about events that happen clearly within people's memories. And even the last bit um, where, where uh, we, we are told that you know upon his return, he finds out that there are servants that hate his guts, and he lines them up and slaughters them once again, these are part of the real events. But Jesus is going to throw in some twists. The twists that Jesus are going to throw into his story involve, number one, he does not put himself in the popular position. In fact, the story seems to be giving some sort of weight or credence towards Archelaus, and it's not giving the typical rah-rah of the people who were against Archelaus. Now, Jesus is not condoning Archelaus, nor is he condemning Archelaus, but he is using a story that evokes some pretty severe uh, reactions, passions, you know, that kind of thing in the, in the memories of people. The other twist that Jesus puts into the story is, is that he adds some, some very interesting details that are clearly not a part of Archelaus's storyline, and, and, and but it, it, you know, it kind of makes sense, you know, that, that's, you know, even if Archelaus went away, I'm sure he put people in charge of his stuff until he got back, you know, knowing that uh, he was coming back, and he expected everything to be run the way he wanted everything to be run while he was away. And so, in the storyline, uh, the ruler, not identified as Archelaus, but, but this is very typical stuff, the ruler gathers in 10 of his servants and uh, gives them, you know, money, and he doesn't give them a lot of money. He gives them a little money. You know, this parable is, is retold in other places in a different way, which to me, I feel as though it's just common sense that the stories that we get in the Gospels were, were not one-offs that Jesus told, but they were, you know, continually, you know, repurposed and told, you know, so that people would remember them. That just makes good sense. And so, each, you know, you know, even though this story is not used exactly the same way as it is in Matthew, it's still serving the purpose that Jesus is trying to make. But in this case, you know, the ruler uh, brings in 10 servants, gives them a little money, and he says, hey, while I'm gone, I need you to, to engage in business. Totally sensible. No problem. I expect you to engage in my business while I'm gone. So here is some money, a little bit of money. Uh, in this case, Amina is probably a couple months wages for most people, a few months wages for a few people. So it's not a ridiculous sum. It's not a big sum. It's, it's, it's just a sum of money. And he expects that this is the kind of, this is, you know, the business that they are to transact in while he's away. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, it, the next part of the story is, 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 is that, you know, he brings the servants back to see how they did. 
again, very uh, usual in our expectations. And uh, so they line up and we're told the first guy says, hey, man, <clears throat> hey, man, um, my the, the mina that you gave me is, is actually now worth 10 minas. And he gets a good well, uh, faithful servant. The, the next servant says, you know, um, oh, here's your mina back, and and uh, and this mina has earned five minas. Whoa, whoa, you know, good stuff there. And then the next guy says, yeah, here's your mina back, but uh, I've got something to say. Now, before we get to the the third servant that you know says, here's your mina back, and uh, well, I didn't get anything. Let's look at you know the thing in Jesus' retelling of the story here that's really different than than anything anybody would have imagined, and that is the ridiculous generosity that is given to the servant who, you know, had one mina turn into 10 minas and, and, you know, one mina turn into five minas. You know, they are given cities. They are given cities to manage. So the, the guy who, who managed to get 10 minas in return for his investment gets 10 cities, and the guy who gets five minas in return for his investment while he's gone gets five cities as a reward. That is like over-the-top ridiculous, something that nobody would have, you know, ever fathomed or thought about. Like, that is just crazy talk, you know? That is, you know, on par with the ridiculous generosity of the parable of the father who has a, a really you know, crappy son, a crappy son who, who, who does some of the most deplorable things and, and, and puts his father down in, in the worst of all possible ways. But yet the father is, is loving and kind and can't wait to have his son back. And when his son comes back, you know, he is ridiculously generous. He's just excited to have his son back. And so these servants and their rewards are on that kind of par of ridiculousness that that their reward is insane. Well, keep that in mind for a moment. But now we get to the guy who says, "Oh, here's your um, here's your mina back." And uh, by the way, I hid it in a handkerchief uh, because I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you know you you uh, um, you reap what you do not sow. Oh. Okay, so this uh, this last guy comes into view, and this guy is trying to make it seem like he has a reasonable claim, but he's also trying to make it seem as though he was afraid of this guy. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the real case. Instead, it seems like he just hates the guy. Because remember, in the story, that you know, as the story shapes up, there are two, you know, audiences, you know, to the ruler who's going away, those who are faithful to him while he's gone and those who hate him and actually sent a delegation hoping that they could convince Rome, you know, or convince the, 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 the ultimate ruler to not put this guy in charge of them. And so Jesus is using this to his story. Clearly this guy, that hands the, the mina back, is not afraid of him. He hates him. He's part of the group that hate him. You have to make that conclusion. He's not afraid, but he's saying that he's afraid because he's a smooth talker, and he's trying to well up the sympathies, you know, or well up the, uh, well, the victim, uh, playing the victim role, I suppose. 
but all of his statements are clearly wrong because of that ridiculous generosity that we just saw. All of his thoughts, all of his statements, all of his thinking about the ruler when he returns is clearly wrong because of the unusual generosity that has been shown to those who are simply faithful with the mina that he gave them. In fact, you know, when the ruler engages this guy, you know, he, he, he makes it very clear that at minimum you could have put this on deposit and got a minimum return. Now, what's going on behind that is that to make a deposit, you know, at a bank, and, and banks like we have them today are not engaged here, but it's close enough. But to make a deposit would have at minimum put you, you know, in allegiance. You would have had to show somebody else the mina, which is the ruler's, and put that on deposit on his behalf while he was gone, meaning, you know, it didn't require any real effort of you, um, if this is the guy, you know, to just simply put it on deposit um, until the guy returns. If you really did, if you really were afraid of him, if you really, you know, just were concerned that, you know, he might respond poorly, then do the safest possible thing that involves absolutely no effort. Identify yourself as one of his servants who is just simply putting his mina on deposit, and when he gets back, then you simply go back, get the deposit, and whatever interest you know has been garnished, and you give it back to him, saying, "Hey, I didn't do too well with this, you know, but I at least did the minimum of of associating myself with you, um, with the bank." <clears throat> this guy, though, is a bser. This guy is is definitely a BSer and and it's the handkerchief that really gives it away because if this guy was you know again if you went back and looked at the minimum that he could do if he really was afraid and he just wanted to keep that mina he, he could have buried it you know to keep it safe um, to put it in a handkerchief to keep it safe no such thing the handkerchief is part of the giveaway as well because by having it in a handkerchief, it means that the guy has it accessible. And so while the ruler has been away, it seems pretty likely that he has at least had this available to flash around saying at when it suited him, he would show the mina to, to show somebody else that he was on the side of the ruler. But on the other hand, he was really part of the group that hated the ruler. And so this is what the ruler flushes out. This guy is a BSer. He is not telling the truth, and the ruler says, you know what, I'll just judge you on your words alone. I'll judge you on your words and your actions. And so he condemns him with his own words. You wicked servant, you knew that I was a severe man and didn't deposit and didn't reap You know what I sowed. Are you kidding me? That's your words, so you get what you want. And, you know, when you come down to the very bottom, it's severe. The enemies, you know, of the ruler are simply brought out and dealt with severely in the utmost severity. They are exterminated. They're extinguished. They're eliminated. Okay, but once again, is this unfair? Well, no, it's common practice in the world. You know, it was common practice for, you know, it was practiced by Archelaus. And it was practiced by any ruler that found 
uh, unfaithful servants um, that, you know, they were disclosed and, you know, consequently discarded. Nobody would have said, you know, that, you know, looking, you know, at, you know, a ruler who discards, you know, unfaithful servants, that he was being unfair. Now, you and I might think that that's unfair. That's because we're Christians. Uh, but, but the rest of the world thinks this is just the way the world runs. It's common practice. It's, it's the, well, risk that you take by being opposed to the ruler. Punishing enemies? Well, that's just the way this world goes. Okay, so now that we have the parable out there, just in the way that the original audience would have heard it, and again, it would have, you know, twisted some, some you know, emotions in people hearing this parable saying, uh-oh, what am I supposed to be taking from this? What does Jesus, you know, you know, telling this story for, how does this story help us to understand that he's near to Jerusalem and that the, the audience feels as though the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately? Well, once again, back to that blind beggar who identified Jesus as the son of David. This was in, in the audience's mind that Jesus is the Christ, so therefore he is the son of David. And you know what, the son, you know what David was good for. Uh, David was good for slaughtering the Philistines. And so they expect that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he is going to slaughter the Philistines. But the next blind guy, Zacchaeus, who's blind because of his shortness, is a corrective to that idea that that. Jesus is the son of David. So the first blind guy got that right, but he's not the son of David that's going to slaughter Rome. No, instead he is here to fellowship. He is here to seek and save the lost. That's what the point of the Zacchaeus passage is, that he's not the son of David who's going to slaughter Rome right now, but he is the son of David. Instead, He's the son of David that is here to provide fellowship and to seek and save the lost. But to think that the son of David is never going to judge people, um, the, the son of David is never going to slaughter the enemies, would be a huge mistake. And so let's just walk back down through the parable again. Those servants who are given Amina to engage in the activity of, of um, you know, the, the master is, is all about the fact that Jesus is telling the audience, I am going away, and while I'm away, I expect my servants to engage in my activity. And what is the activity that Jesus has engaged in? Well, the activity that Jesus has engaged in has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with fellowship for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. That's the activity. That's the activity that Jesus has already made promises about that he will reward. He has made it very clear. Whatever you give up for the kingdom of God, even if it's a penny, even if it's one cent, if you do anything that identifies yourself with the kingdom of God, you know, that little bank deposit, you know, you just do the minimum effort. Jesus promises the Father will be overrun with joy, and, and the ruler, who is Jesus here in this scenario, will be overrun with joy and repay 
even the smallest amount, with ridiculous generosity. Okay, well, that is what Jesus is saying. He is drawing that point, but he is also making the point that I am going away. And this brings us to another, you know, human concern. It's been the concern ever since, you know, the very beginning. And the human concern that that we all cry out with as human beings is that God doesn't turn up. The Bible tells a story that's quite different, that God does turn up. In fact, Jesus' nickname is Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, the story of Israel is the story of God with them. But then he had to remove his presence from them because of their unfaithfulness. But it has no, nothing to do with God's will. God's desire is to be present. God's desire is to make his presence known. God's aim and ambition for this world is to be present in this world. And Jesus is making his point, and that is that he too is going away, but he is going to return. He's going away to get a kingdom, a kingdom from the Father, a a kingdom that the Father gives in its entirety to the Son. Um, and, And in this, we start to see that beautiful picture of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in this, you know, great relationship that they have with one another, But in the end, it's all about the Son being the ruler of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying, that is me. But I am not here to create war. I am not here to create war. But when I get back, there will be a reckoning. So that too becomes, you know, a a huge part of the point that Jesus is making. Do not be misled. When Jesus comes back, with his kingdom, as we pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a moment coming when Jesus, with the kingdom of God, will return. And at that moment, all unfaithfulness will be dealt with. All you know, wickedness, all evil, and all rebellion will be dealt with. So don't be thinking that Jesus is, you know, somehow punting on this. He's just delaying it because because judgment is not God's work. It's his strange work. Salvation is his work. Salvation is what God is excited about. Fellowship and seeking and saving the lost is what excites God. That's why the delay keeps going on, because God is kind, and he is offering fellowship and seeking and saving the lost, and there's still that going on. But don't think that God is gone or that God is uninterested or that God wound this place up and he let it go and he doesn't really care what we do. Don't be thinking that while the cat is away, that the mice are free to play. Don't make that mistake. Jesus has made this point clear in other places. He's now making it again. But now he's he's building this picture that Yes, he is going to Jerusalem to die, and he is going to rise again, but it's all about him getting the kingdom that is God's. He is the king of the kingdom, and he will come back. And when he does come back, all enemies, all enemies will be put away because he will judge us on the same basis as what the, the parable says. God will judge us based on what we say and what we do. 
Believe you me, there is nothing more horrifying than to think of your own words being used to condemn you, your own actions being used to condemn you. If you don't think that you need God or his forgiveness, those words will be brought back to you. Your actions will be brought back to you. Those who do even the bare minimum of simply identifying with God and, 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 and you know, and, and making their allegiance to God known, that's just the bare minimum, have everything to look forward to. Jesus has, has in, in, in ten ways to, or seven ways to Sunday made this point. God is entirely generous, and, and even you know, the smallest of actions of faithfulness will yield huge results. You know, give God that kind of trust. And when we think about this parable, when we think about God judging this world, most people cry out, well, that's unfair. Is it? We live in a world where it is now common practice to punish your enemies. And, and, and those who are into punishing enemies, you know, their popularity just seems to be growing. We're, we're, our cultural expectation now is all about punishing enemies. It's not about extending kindness to enemies. Right now, God is extending kindness to all of his enemies. And so the parable serves as a great warning. The cat is away. But don't be the mice who play. Be the mice. Be the mice who understand who the cat is. In fact, you know, uh, put your allegiances in the rightful spot. Get on the right side of things. Fellowship. Seeking and saving the lost, this is what God is into, and we should be too, while he's gone. But he's not really gone, because he's coming back. Well, that's what we got right now. We'll catch you next time.